command center and this is the first time that i'm actually doing the talk talk show from the command center from the starship enterprise (laughs) so there's like more computers to contend with over here and uh it's a little daunting it's a little bit daunting to me so but that's all right because harry's a good teacher and he's got a calm 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 demeanor so um i'm Deneen Milner is going to call in in a minute. We're going to have a wonderful conversation. At least I imagine it to be wonderful because in my mind, she's already my good friend. (laughs) I don't even know her, but she's already my good friend just by the stuff that I've read um, by her. And if you don't know her, you'll get to know her a little bit better today. So she'll be calling in in a few minutes um, so that we can have a good conversation. And we can talk about her new book, which is come. I mean, early Sunday morning, which is a children's book, which is her first Um, picture children's picture book and it's a beautiful book and the thing that i like about it is that you know i'm a tactile person so the the cover is got some some raised features to it so when you run your hands over it um you can feel it so she's gonna be on and we're gonna talk Oh, so she is calling in. This is so cool. This is why I like doing radio, because you get to talk to the coolest people on the planet. And uh, and I know she's funny and uh, and she is a sister, sister, sister girl. So let me let me just like raise it on up. Hey, Deneen. Good morning. Hi. How are you, girl? How are you? <laughs> I've been so excited. To t- <laughs> I'm such a fan of yours. I have been a fan of yours for a very long time. So this is perfect to, to be talking to you today. How are you? That is so sweet. Thank you. I'm great. Thank you. It's Friday. I'm, I have a book due on Monday, and I can actually see the finish line, which is different from what last week was looking like. So life is good. That's good. Well, let me tell you something. Early Sunday Morning is a very beautiful book. Thank you. And if my children were young, I would be buying a thousand of them. But I don't have little kids anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But I have people who have little kids. So everybody's going to be getting one of these books because they're so pretty. They are pretty. Thank you. You know. Thank you. Now you have this. I'm so excited. You have a big, 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 big writing life. Right? I do. I do. That's what I do. Everything that I do is centered around words or my children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I started out as a journalist 30 years ago this year, it's last year. So it's been 31 years now. Wow. I got my first big check or my first check for writing when I was 17 years old. It was for Black Collegiate Magazine. I know that magazine. Yeah, yeah, and they paid me 500 bucks to write a story, and you couldn't tell me I was a filthy rich. What? And so, (laughs) (laughs) you know, college student, $500 might as well be $5,000. Girl, that's like Um, a plane trip in a a hotel. (laughs) Listen, it was a cute outfit for the party on Friday and some shoes to go with it and dinner for me and my girlfriends and admission to the club. I, I was balling. (laughs) but um that's when i got my first my first check and i've been writing and getting paid for my art since then so it's been 30 years and that's how i pay my my you know my rent that's how i keep my car note up that's how i get my girls through school that's how we keep food on the table Mm -hmm. now did you know when did you know you were a writer like when was it i mean i know you got the big check when you were 17 but before that Mm -hmm. like were you how did you did somebody cultivate you did somebody sort of see the interest did someone like nurture you how how did you know sure well you know i i I didn't really there's there's like two touchstones um in my my life as a writer, uh, one was when I was in the ninth grade and my dad, um, I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to be an architect really bad. And 
you know, like I couldn't get my grades together with physics and math because mm-hmm. I am not a mathematical person. I still am not. Like, I can calculate, you know, 20% off of the price of a purse, but please don't ask me to do, like, quantum physics. I can't do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I was horrible at it. And, you know, horrible for me was, like, getting B's and C pluses instead of A's. And so my dad sat me down and he was like, you know what, this architecture thing is not going to work out because you kind of need to be good at science and math in order to make the building stand. So, um, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And right when he asked me that question, I was sitting at the, we were sitting at the kitchen table. I grew up in Long Island, New York, and there was this show on at the time called Live at Five, and mm-hmm. the person, the host of it was Sue Simmons. I know Sue Simmons. He, yes. Sue Simmons, who is, you know, my hero and the reason why I got into this business. And she was interviewing New Edition. And you couldn't tell me that I wasn't going to grow up to marry Ralph and have all of his babies. And so when... <laughs> so when that was everybody's dream. <laughs> right, exactly. That was my man. That was my man. We were going to have a happy, happy life together. And so... You know, I, I, when he said, when my dad said, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? In my head, I was like, I want to be Sue Simmons because then I could get to my man. But out loud, I said, I, would, I wouldn't mind doing what she does. She's, you know, she gets to interview people. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind doing that. So he says, okay, so tomorrow I want you to go back to school and figure out what you have to do to become Sue Simmons. And, you know, my dad and I are best friends to this day. And... Um, you know, when daddy said run, I took off. And so I went back to school and the very next day and found out what I needed to do to become Sue Simmons. And it turns out that my school had all these incredible programs geared specifically towards broadcast journalism. So we had a radio show that if you had your own records, you could go there and get a, your own radio show that was actually heard throughout like Long Island. I could work for the yearbook um, and write and take pictures. And then we had this media class. If you agreed to stay an extra period after school, you could learn how to use camera equipment and learn how to produce, edit, all different kinds of things. And so I got, I talked my way into that program and used all of that to get a scholarship from my local newspaper, Long Island Newsday which ended up sending me to Hofstra University for um, on full tuition scholarship. Wow. And that's how I, yeah, that's how I got into journalism. Mm-hmm. Now, when I first realized that I could write, um, hmm, you know, I was a political reporter at the Daily News. No, I was a, I was a political reporter at the Associated Press first. Um, and probably writing for them, I I was covering Governor Cuomo at the time, and there were a couple of, I I knew that I had what it took to be a journalist. I was well-trained by the folks in that, um, in that, that particular newsroom. I worked out of Albany, New York, and, you know, they just taught me how to report and how to track people down and how to really get to the bottom of the issues. And I did some really serious journalism there that got the attention of the bigger newspapers mm-hmm. in New York City. And I got recruited by the Daily News. So I knew that I was a good journalist because at age 20, I guess I was 23, 24 years old when they started recruiting me. Mm-hmm. And I actually said, I turned them down three times and then I said yes the fourth time. Um, and moved down to New York uh, from Albany to be a, a reporter in the City Hall Bureau. And that's when I knew that my journalism skills were, were you know, up to snuff because at the time, the Daily News was the sixth largest newspaper in the country. Mm-hmm. And here I was, this, you know, like 25-year-old black girl going into the newsroom at the sixth, sixth largest newspaper in the country and working in one of the coveted positions as a political reporter. And then later, I realized that I could write right um, when I transitioned from the political beat to the entertainment beat. And I just started writing stories that caught the attention, not just of the the daily news readers, but, 
you know, my stuff was being picked up by CNN, MSNBC. Um, I had been invited uh, to come and host the uh, morning shows in New York because they liked my work um, in the entertainment field. I was being asked to write for magazines, which was unheard of. People really didn't think that people who wrote news stories could transition into writing magazine stories, which are, you know, just longer, more involved, um, involve more color and, you know, panache when you're writing. Mm -hmm. But I never let anybody put me into a box. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the stories that, that I wrote really caught a lot of attention, a lot of buzz because of the way that I wrote and the voice that I created for myself with my words. So I guess I really knew that I was a good writer by the time I became an entertainment reporter at the Daily News. And it was one of my stories at the Daily News that actually opened the door for me to be an author. Yeah. So did you, so when you were doing the political, covering political stuff, did you have a love for it? I mean, do you, did you like, oh, you know, being in the mix of politics is such an exciting thing. Or did you just like, I just want to learn and then move on? It was a combination of both, right? When I worked for as a political reporter out of the Associated Press, I was there to learn. I took the job because I wanted to learn. And my boss at the time, Mike Hendricks, who was still a friend of mine, um, encouraged me. Mm -hmm. He didn't care that I was young. He saw something in me, an ability to be able to go over to, you know, cover state politics in, you know, the, in in the the state Capitol Mm -hmm. and paired me with reporters who, who nurtured me. Um, and, and I, I'm forever grateful for that because they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to look over and see me raising my hand and say, yes, little black girl at age 22, you have what it takes to be a political reporter or, you know, like come over here and write, but you suck. So we're going to send you back. Like they really just nurtured me. And I drank that in because I really loved sort of the, the chase. I loved um, the ability to dig up, um, to dig up the bones, to get down and dirty in the paperwork and find where the stories were. And covering politics was just, it was something else to be able to see how government um, and the legislation and politics specifically affected communities. And so one of the big stories that I did while I was a reporter at the Associated Press that actually got the attention of the newspapers was I managed to track down um, one of the men who went to prison for shooting Malcolm X. I found out somehow, I don't even remember how I found out, but I found out that he was, um, that he had been released on parole and that he was living in a halfway house. I read that story. I read that story. (laughs) I read that story. (laughs) I read, and I didn't know any, and you know what the thing is? I had no, I had no awareness or knowledge of the folks who killed Malcolm X until I read your story and found out. Are you serious? I'm not, I'm serious. I knew some brothers had killed him, but I didn't know after that, there was no other conversation about whatever. And then I read your piece about what, you know, he's in a halfway house. They about to get out. And And I remember being stunned by that. Like, how is that possible? Like, I don't, I didn't know how to process it. Right. Right. How do you kill an icon and then get to walk out and just have a regular life? Like, how does that happen? How does that work? Yeah. And so I managed to track him down and got him on the phone Ooh. and talked to him. So that, that caught people's attention. Well, what and did that do to you? That, but what did that do to you? Like, when you, when you get this guy on the phone, and, and, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's been a long time, right? But right. Malcolm right. meant something to all of us. What, what, what were you, right. How did you process that? Like, what and was that, that? And at the time, you know, like, I was a, and still am, a huge huge uh, admirer of Malcolm and all that he did for us. It was, you know, I came to, I came into my own as a lover of our people Mm -hmm. um, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X Mm -hmm. and understanding um, the systems that were put in place to just sort of keep us in our place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I revered Malcolm and the idea of someone taking his life and, in effect, stealing our lives 
right? Our ability to see us in a very specific way and to move in a very specific way and to demand our rights in a very specific way. Um, you know, he killed the, the two people who went to prison for killing him. Um, you know, like they killed, they, they didn't just kill Malcolm. They killed, you know, a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. for us. They mm-hmm. killed a whole lot of dreams or at least put a whole lot of dreams on hold. Mm-hmm. And so I felt some kind of way about them. But as a journalist, which is what I was charged with doing, I felt some kind of way about being able to track down this man and get him on the phone and be able to write a story about, you know, his being released. Like, nobody knew it. And I was able to track him down. And, you know, here I am, a 22-year-old kid, Mm -hmm. you know, like 22 years old. And I had the skills to be able to um, get the story, know its import, track down the person that was, you know, basically the star of the story and write a hell of a story that got sent out to newspapers across the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was a big, big deal. So, you know, like it made it, you know, the, the feelings were a mixture of pride and, and of disgust. Now, when you think about then, that right, time, right Deneen, at, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. just when you think about oh. that in your grown mm-hmm. self now, do you think about that? Do you think about that story and, and how it could have been different or not different? Or does it still move you? Do you still feel the same way? You know, how have you, you matured know, I, into it? Yeah, there's there's another story that um, that makes me feel a bit more um, a bit more more proud of the legacy that I was able to create for myself or the doors that I was able to open because of it. So this was right around the time that Anita Hill mm. was um, going through the whole, um, the hearings, you know, Clarence right? Thomas hearings. Right. Yeah. And um, right around the time I had started hearing rumors that there were some folks in the state Capitol who were in the state, um, uh, state congressmen, state senators, who were guilty of doing exactly what Clarence Thomas was being accused of doing to Anita Hill. So, you know, because I was the cute little black girl who looked like I was 12, you know, people, for some reason, felt comfortable telling stuff to me. And maybe it was an underestimation of my skills and ability, mm-hmm. or maybe they saw something in me that they, you know, felt like it was okay to, you know, drop some scoops on me. But whatever it was, someone told me that a couple of women in the state con- congressional um, and, and, and a few congresswomen and one senator had gone through um, some, some sexual harassment on the, on the state congressional floor. And so I had to track down who these women were and then track down who the men could have be could have been based on who all was involved with who at the time that this was supposed to have happened. Mm. And so I tracked down the women. Um, you know, a couple of folks gave me some leads and I managed to track down I, I believe I tracked down three different women. Um, one who was outspoken and actually spoke on the record. And when she spoke on the record and said what would ha- what was happening to her, it was just like mind blown. Wow, people really do that. And they do that in, you know, even in the halls of power. Like I've been through sexual harassment as like a kid, you know, college student working at a restaurant, but you would never expect that kind of behavior on the congressional floor. Mm-hmm. And so... I I got this woman to talk to me. I got her to talk to me on record. And when I did, and and that story got sent out on the news wires all over the country, then it became a bigger story. Now everybody was wondering, who was it that harassed her? So I managed to track down, figure out um, with my reporting who it might be. And when I figured it out, the closer I got to it, the more frenzy there was and the more frenzy there was. Um, the closer I got to the the men who did it. And then they actually came out and held a press conference and apologized for harassing this woman. And that was all because of me. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge story. And I was just, that one is the one that um, just made me, you know, burst with pride because it was truly 
me doing the reporting and me using the skills that I've learned in the in the political um, you know realm to get to the bottom of a very serious story that affected women, the way that we were treated in the workplace, um, you know, the way that folks conducted themselves in politics and hopefully affected change. It also opened the door for me to be recruited the fourth time by the Daily News. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that being recruited by the Daily News put me in, you know, again, in that huge arena um, and doubled my salary. So, <laughs> so that's when I knew oh. I was good. <laughs> All right, so, so Deneen, so social media jumps on the scene. You become a blogger, mm-hmm. right? Cause I, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fast yeah. forwarding through all, because there's some other good stuff that ha- has happened to you um, before you even jumped into the, to the social media scene in the blog world. But you, 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 sure. you jump into the blog world, you take on black motherhood, not like mm-hmm. as as an accusation, but as a celebratory act of I I would say independence, right? Like you were yeah, you were showing black mothers that we were fabulous, that we could be fabulous, yeah, and that absolutely. and that our children were fabulous. So how talk about that, and then and then I want you to talk about the overlay of of social media and how it has really changed the landscape for writers and reporters and and things like that. Like Mm -hmm. how has it, what has it done for you? And then we'll talk about some of the other books because you've got a bunch of books that I want to talk to before we, before I let go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I I will, I will, I will fast forward through through social media and my Brown baby. So we could get to the books too. Um, So my Brown baby was born in 2008 during the, um, presidential election between Obama and, uh, oh goodness, what was the guy's name who is, uh, uh, that he ran against the first time, um, Sarah Palin. Oh, McCain, the, the, John McCain. The, right, John McCain and Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin was the focus of my ire because her daughter had announced that she was pregnant, or everyone had found out that her daughter was pregnant, her teenage daughter was pregnant, Bristol Palin. And the the overriding conversation was, oh, um, you know, this isn't up for discussion. She's a kid. She's having a baby. This is a family matter. She made the choice to have the baby. And nobody should be getting in the middle of their family business. And I was like, <laughs> what? That is so not what me and my girlfriend are talking about. You know, like, if that was Sasha or Malia, what? you know, we would be talking Girl. about their little hot pockets. We'd be talking about, you know, her mama, her mama wouldn't be no good. Grandmama wouldn't exactly. be no good. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Generations worth of, worth of Obamas wouldn't be no good. And so, I, you know, I've decided to write a piece saying that, you know, how, how grossly unfair it was that we weren't, that we were being chastised for talking about this girl making the choice <laughs> to have a child when her mom was patently um, anti-sexual uh, education in school. Patently, patently anti-birth control and, you know, patently anti-abortion. But, you know, her daughter made a choice to have her child, like, mm-hmm. which is the, the very essence of what Planned Parenthood and groups like that say, which is, you know, a woman had, should have the choice to choose her parenthood. And so she chose to be a mother, whereas some other people would choose not to be mothers at that time. And so I wanted to talk about that, but there was no one talking about that in the media, in newspapers, magazines, blogs, um, mommy blogs were a huge thing back then. Nobody was talking about it from that perspective, from a very distinctly African-American perspective of how, how different the tenor of the conversation would be if um, black, if, if it was Sasha or Malia, mm-hmm. two little black girls. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this piece. And it just blew up. Everybody loved it. And, and, you know, at the time, so I fast forward, fast forward from me being a political reporter, I became an entertainment editor at Honey Magazine and then an editor at Parenting Magazine. And by the time I got around to creating My Brown Baby, I was a columnist for um, Parenting Magazine doing ethics and etiquette um, column called Astonine. And so, um, you know, by the time My Brown Baby came out, you know, Mommy blogs were a big, gigantic thing, and I just decided that I 
there wasn't anything out there talking about motherhood from our perspective. Um, the only time that anybody ever talked to us about um, our parenting journeys is when they were, you know, talking about pathology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you wanted to talk about poverty or education or or lack thereof or the school to prison pipeline or, you know, the mm-hmm. dropout dropout rates. Well, why can't black, black women mother. get married? <laughs> exactly. You know, Precisely, because we do. I know I've been married for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody, I have a bunch of friends who are married. I know that we make our children with intention, right? Even if we're not married, mm-hmm. we make our children with intention and we love them and raise them with intention. I know that, um, you know, that, that not all of us are, you know, poor and dealing with, you know, the, 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 the the outcomes or or the downfalls that come with that. I know that even if we are dealing with poverty, that we we are making a way out of no way and creating joy for our children. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I wanted to be able to focus the light on black motherhood and the joy of the journey, not necessarily all of the, the bad things that everybody leaned on us to talk about but you know the journey of being a, a black mother whether it whether good bad or indifferent we we share the same journey as any other mother we're all raising human beings mm-hmm. and so i wanted to be able to focus that on on the blog and that's how i ended up with my brown baby um and and it it, it became a huge thing because of social media you know um facebook and twitter and pinterest and Snapchat and Instagram and all of these different places where people go to congregate and have conversations kind of change the game for journalists in particular, writers, um, you know, certainly. It created this almost kind of like this wild, wild west where anybody could, you know, with a, a camera phone and the ability to use their thumbs to type out a sentence or 140 characters could call themselves a journalist. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because I'm an old school journalist. You know, before um, Google, before, uh, you know, computers that could actually spit back information. You had to go and track your facts, right? Listen, I had to track (laughs) down the information, okay? Like walk it, like go walk it. Yeah, Absolutely. And wait for people to call back because cell phones didn't exist. <laughs> and, you know, try if you, you could, if you could get a beeper number, you were lucky. But yes. you know, otherwise, you were leaving a phone number on somebody's answering machine, not voicemail, an answering machine, mm-hmm. and hoping that they would get back to you. And with the Associated Press, because it was a newswire service, we were all responsible for writing anywhere from three to six stories a day before three o'clock. Wow. So that the newspapers that we serviced and the radio stations and the television stations that we serviced would be able to use our stories in their their uh, their the next day's newspapers and also allow their their reporters to use our copy to bolster their own copy. Mm-hmm. And so I knew how to report, write, and make sure that it was factual three to six stories before three o'clock in the afternoon. That's a journalist. Um, you know, picking up a phone, pointing it at something that, um, you know, may be going on in the street and then writing 140 characters is citizen journalism, but it's not, you ain't working for the New York Times with that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, 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 it disgusts me as a journalist and a writer that um, the wild, wild west is wildly unregulated and people and it gives people the idea that they are journalists because they can very quickly upload information not facts but information mm-hmm. onto um platforms that go out to a wide uh, swath of people very quickly um but as a writer and a journalist i am pleased about the wild wild west because it creates opportunities where they didn't exist specifically for people of color mm-hmm. um you know people who didn't get the opportunity to get a look by the new york times or didn't get an opportunity to get a look at you know a magazine or you know a television station uh, as a television journalist are now able to tell stories from a very specific point of view that um, you know is raw and unregulated, but still um, you know packs a punch 
and is able to show you what really is happening versus, you know, a, a piece that goes through a journalist and three or four different editors who are trying to, um, you know, put the story in a way that they say is objective, but may not necessarily be objective mm-hmm. because of the people who are writing it or editing it and, mm-hmm. you know, the audience that they think they're catering to. But, and Denise, so, do, you you know, think we're, do you think we're in this time now that even though your concerns are quite valid, that people are not caring about that. Like whoever can get something out there fast, regardless of fact or, or um, um, invasiveness of, 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 of people's rights and privacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you make of it? What do you make of this? Well, you know, when I think of stories like Ferguson, and what was happening in the streets when the people were marching and and you know demanding that uh that the officer be arrested and charged and demanding that the systems change because they were tired of being oppressed in their own community where they pay taxes and mm-hmm. where they they have a reasonable expectation to be safe around the people who are there paying to protect them when i think about the news that I saw um, coming from people's phones and on Twitter and videos that I saw on Facebook and Twitter um, and juxtaposing that with the stories that were coming from mainstream news media that mainstream was covering in a way like it was a riot, that everything was out of control, that the people were running through the streets and looting and rioting and, you know, just basically completely burning down their community. But when you looked at the citizen journalism and you saw just dozens and dozens and hundreds of videos and um, uh, uh, of what really was happening um, with people like literally laying down, I think it was Talib Kweli mm-hmm. who was with um, a few other um journalists, citizen, not citizen journalists, like real journalists who had been writing that I knew for years. And they were laying down in the street and had guns pointed at them. Like what was Talib, Talib Kweli clearly wasn't throwing Molotov cocktails at the CBS. <laughs> he was walking in the street and, you know, raising his voice as an American citizen is allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for his troubles, he had guns pointed at him by cops who didn't know who he was, didn't care who he was, just knew that he was a black man in the street doing something that they didn't want him to do. Not anything wrong, just something that he didn't want to do. When I saw stories like that of people, uh, you know, there was another story that I loved of a bunch of older women who were like, look, we ain't getting ready to get in the street and get hit with with, um, tear gas and rubber bullets. But what we can do is stand on this lawn over here and put a sign up and tell people, Listen, you come over here and you talk to your aunties and we're going to give you hugs and love and let you yell and scream and cry into our shoulder because we know that you're frustrated. We know that you're emotional. We know that you're angry and we know that you need an outlet. Come over here and let us hug you and listen to you. Mm -hmm. That was a story that wasn't covered on Mm -hmm. television or in the newspapers because they were too busy trying to show us as a bunch of demons running through the street, tearing up a community. That wasn't the whole story. And so in those instances, citizen journalism is spectacular because you get to use those that those the social media, all those social media channels to tell in real time what's really going on. And so I would never discount what they're doing. I just think that there needs to be a balance between the two. Yes. Yes. And I don't know if we're moving in that direction, but. You know, right. I, I don't because I don't. I, don't, I mean, I have been in this game a long time, and I've never seen anything mm-hmm. quite like this from mm-hmm. from from mm-hmm. all from entertainment right. to news to government. I've not seen mm-hmm. so so much disarray and so much mismatch of things that I think it's okay. hard for people to okay. sort sort out the reality of things, or we're so conditioned okay. for reality as types of information that we people don't have mm-hmm. the patience to um you know disc, real discourse and real understanding they're not media literate right. so people just accept what they right. see and just go with absolutely. it right so, absolutely so it, and yeah. and even worse social media has made it so that 
we look at these things and debate them from a very emotional place, right? It's yeah. not necessarily factual. Right. It's more my opinion and how I feel about it. I don't really care about the facts. This is how I feel about it. And that's more important and more relevant than the facts. And so if you can't find a balance between the facts and, you know, how those those facts make your, you know, sort of, sort of put your opinions, what, what that does for your opinions, how it colors your opinions, then you, you just get a mishmash of mess, of mess instead of actual news. And so I think social media kind of, particularly now, in the beginning, it, I thought that it was more pure, but now it really is, you know, you look at any um, newspaper, you look at any television show, news show, it's all opinion. You know, it's no longer meet the press and a bunch of people sitting around talking about facts. It's, you know, it's, I'm going to turn to Fox and listen to a conservative viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn to MSNBC and listen to a progressive viewpoint. It's not, it's all opinion. It's not necessarily fact. And folks have no idea how to distinguish between the two. And yeah, you know, people I think will you're look at the right. New York Times. Right. People will look at the New York Times and claim that the New York Times is, you know, it's it's uh, fake news, what, alternative yeah. facts, or <laughs> fake news, and it's just like, what are I you know. talking about right now? What? what are you talking about? You do realize that there's a difference between the editorial and opinion pages and the news pages, right? Like that's very basic. That's so basic, but people have no clue. No so clue. How, and that's frustrating, scary. how frustrating is this for you? Because because you're a journalist first and you're a tried and true trained journalist. So when you're looking at the mm-hmm. news, you're looking at it with a very different kind of eye than than everyday people. Right. So right. do you right. do you feel like you spend your time trying to get people media literate? I'm sure in your circle, everybody is media literate. But do you find yourself right. having to sort of take the long way around to sort of lay out a particular point of view or a fact yeah, or a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and real time, definitely. <laughs> in real time. Now I don't play that on my Facebook page and my Twitter page. You know, I know. Like I, I know. You will I will not seen come onto my Facebook page and act a fool I know. and say all kinds of crazy stuff on my Facebook page. I've, I've made a point of calling, you know, yes. training my folks who are on my Facebook page to know I am not one to play I've with. I've seen when you it comes say it. Things. I was like, I'm not the one. I've seen you say it. I am not the one not here. <laughs> <laughs> but in real time, you know, I try really hard to, you know, I work a lot with kids. So um, I live in, in Midtown Atlanta. My kids go to the local high school here. And my husband and I run the writing center. And your husband of, is um, the, high the fabulous Nick my Childs? My husband is, is Nick Childs. He's Nick Childs. He's also a writer, journalist, Pulitzer yes. Prize winning journalist. Yes. He's brilliant. Yes. Um, and we, we, you know, in our spare time, what little bit we have, we actually go over over to the school and run a writing center there. So kids come um, with their schoolwork, their essays, research papers, college essays, scholarship essays, and get help from us. And so um, uh, it's me and him. And then we have uh, several volunteers who okay. do all different kinds of programming. We, br- we bring journalists in. We bring authors in. We have writing contests. Who's bigger than you two? What authors are bigger than you two? Who? Who's bigger than you two? You have this wildly (laughs) successful writing experience with Steve Harvey. Not one, but twice. Uh Wildly successful. So successful that they became movies. Like the book became two movies. That's you. Yeah. Right. So now people ringing your phone off the hook. Can you do this for me too? Well, then you have Taraji Henson. Uh Right. So you have that. Right. Which is wildly successful. Wildly. Right. So are people right. like, I, let me get the need on the phone. Like, is Beyonce calling you? Like, who's calling you? Who's calling you? Beyonce has not called. No, she has not. <laughs> That's a phone call I would take. <laughs> I, I think she's going to be calling you. <laughs> call me, baby. Call I think, me. I think we, can, be, we can make magic together. I think she's ready to start talking a little bit, you know. <laughs> I hope so, because she's got a compelling story that, that just, you know, the charting her growth from being in Destiny's Child to being the mother of, 
you know, three children, two of which are still in her belly, but still her children. Mm -hmm. Um, And and charting that growth politically um, from a feministic um, point of view, from uh, the view of a mother, from the view of a black black woman is just absolutely um, something that I think is beyond compelling. And good Lord, I would love to write that book. I would love um, for you to write it too. So when people call you to write a book, how, what is that process uh-huh. like, Denise? Like, I mean, you've written your own books. Like I, I, The Vow, I read The Vow. I saw the movie, the Lifetime movie. I've seen it. So I have Sister right. Rules. I have, you know, <laughs> when I tell you I'm a fan, I'm a fan. Oh, wow. I am a fan. <laughs> so when someone wow, calls wow, wow. you to write a book, like, well, like mm-hmm. what, what do you think? Do you, and was Steve Harvey the first um, book that you did like that, like because you're the right, you um, become the writer. You well, you are the writer, right. and they tell you well, the story. Steve, the, yeah, well, the, the Steve Harvey book happened because I had just moved from New York to Atlanta, and he was looking for an Atlanta writer. And the editor who had reached out to him to um, get this book written uh, wanted. Uh, knew me. I had worked with her on several other projects, and she trusted that I would be able to get the story out of him and get it done quickly. And so, and he wanted an, an Atlanta-based writer, and I had just happened to move here. So I had written, um, I had written, had I written a Nene Leakes book by then? I oh, think yes, I and Nene, the Nene, Nene Leakes yeah. book. Yes. I haven't right. read that I, one, though. I've written Nene's book. And I had written um, a children's book with Holly Robinson Pete, and mm-hmm. then another ghost writing project with another um, celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so they knew that I I, w- I was able to do that kind of work. Um, and and again, my background is, that, is as a journalist. I spent a long time, not just as a, as a political reporter, but an entertainment reporter. And so I have a, a, a really I have a gift of being able to sit down with people hear their story, ask them the questions that need to be asked, and then writing the story in my voice and theirs. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it made it possible for me to do Steve's book, which opened the door because of its success to all of these other Wildly memoirs successful. that I ended up writing. Wildly yeah. successful. Yeah. Like it became movies. Yeah. Like I don't even yeah, know it how was, that It happens. was the, the top sell. Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man was the top selling book in the, in the world in 2009. Mm-hmm. No other book sold more, and um, and that just that opened doors for me. It opened doors for me um, in terms of people being able to see what I could do, how I'd be able to craft their stories, and you know I'm grateful for that because I've I've managed to write some pretty interesting stories, like you know Charlie Wilson. Um, you know, I am Charlie Wilson. It yes. was a is is a great book. I love it because he had an amazing story. He had a, about a, a, you know, a like very his compelling bride. story. Yes, absolutely. And the way he absolutely. met his wife, and, and she took a chance, and the whole mm-hmm, thing, and mm-hmm. yes, absolutely, absolutely. And then you know, the big feat was last year. I wrote. I call last year the year of the cookies because I wrote. Cookie Johnson's memoir and Taraji Henson's memoir, and of course she plays Cookie on um, on Empire. I wrote their books at the same time. They wrote their memoirs at the same time. I got the contracts at the same time, and they were due literally on the same day. Wow! And wow, I wrote them. Wow! And they came out within a month of each other last year in September and October of 2016. And both of them were on the New York Times bestsellers list at the same time. So I'm like, Whoa, I did that. <laughs> so you you are a writer's writer. <laughs> I, am, I am a writer's writer, man. You are That's a writer's what I do. writer. I, so, so this beautiful children's do. book, which is your first children's yeah. picture book. So what's yes. next? And this it's, is a beautiful book. I mean, it's beautiful from from the cover to the pages. Your illustrator you. is wonderful. These children look happy thank and you. joyous and rich and honey-hued and mahogany. And Absolutely. So Absolutely. What? So so the book that you're talking about is Early Sunday Morning. It's yes. the debut um, children's book, children's picture book, off of my new children's book imprint. Uh, yes. Janine Milner Books. I I created it in conjunction with Agate Publishing, the small publisher out of Chicago. And um, we, Doug Seibold, who's the president of, um, 
of uh, Agate and I decided back and decided to partner back in 2015, and um, with a mission of putting out children's books um, featuring and written by African and, and illustrated by African Americans, um, with a focus on celebrating Black children. Um, so you won't find sort of the typical fare that you get with black children's books, which is we're going to talk about civil rights or slavery oh my or, God. or something or having athle- to do with or, an icon. Or athleticism. Right, an icon, that's an athlete or a musician or something like that. I feel like because, and, and this circles back to sort of my mission with My Brown Baby, is that I feel like we need to be celebrating the humanity of our children. You know, they're humans. So they, they, they get their teeth at the same time as everybody else, around the same time as everybody else. They sit up and learn how to walk around the same time as anybody else. They are scared when they get on the, on the bus for the first time, on their mm-hmm. way to uh, first day of kindergarten. All of these different things, they, you know, like they wait for the tooth fairy just like everybody else. <laughs> and we never see those kinds of stories, or we hardly ever see those kinds of stories featuring African-American characters. And so Doug and I... Um, partnered and decided we are going to create this this line of children's books that is going to be sort of a love letter to black children where we celebrate their humanity. And so early Sunday morning is very much a part of the celebration of that humanity. It's based on um, on my life as a kid growing up in St. John's Baptist Church in Long Island, New York. Mm-hmm. And it's about a little girl who has her first church solo and how she um, sort of overcomes the jitters of having to stand up in front of this huge audience of people and sing a song for the first time. And that's such a universal story. I mean, it's my story, too. I mean, I didn't sing, but there was always performance in church. I mean, I grew up Pentecostal. I'm not Pentecostal now. But there was always Mm -hmm. Christmas pageants, Easter pageants. You you had to say some lines or something in front of people. So so it resonated with me. It it drug me all the way back to my Pentecostal roots when I had to be like Esther Mm -hmm. in the play. That's that's exact that's exactly what I was hoping it would do. Absolutely. It did. I was that's like, Ooh, exactly what I was hoping it she did. Dragged me right back to being <laughs> I Esther. remember that. I did. And so right. it was really it was right. really good. So now what's next? Right. Because you're gonna do you're gonna do these you're gonna get these children books out there. They're gonna be well received, right. so, wildly successful. Yes. But what's the so personal goal? Are... Oh goodness. So <laughs> so pers- two more goals with the Neen Milner books is I have Two more children's picture books coming out this okay. year. One written, one written by Char- Charlie Palmer and Dorothea Taylor. Um, they are a, they are not married anymore, but they wrote this book together. Um, Charlie is a, a world-renowned, a fine artist, and he just happened to have this book that he wrote with his ex-wife sitting in a box in his art studio. I went over to talk to him about illustrating a book for me. And he's like, you know, I have this book that, that I had just sitting in a box. You want to look at it? And it turned out to be this beautiful book called There's a Dragon in My Closet. Oh. And it's about a little boy who gets into all kinds of shenanigans at his house and blames it on the imaginary dragon in his closet. <laughs> and then and then and it's a little black like boy who dreams and imagines. Exactly. You know, like why have we never seen this story from a for black our kid's kids, perspective? Right? Because like, they have imaginations <laughs> right? and, and all of that. It exactly. doesn't always have to be a civil rights, Precisely. slavery, athletic Precisely. book. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> and, then, and then there's another one coming out in October that is just my crown jewel. It's called Crown, an Ode to the Fresh Cut. And it's written by an author named Derek Barnes and illustrated by this fine artist out of North Carolina named Gordon James. And the book is about, it's a, it's a poem, it's prose, about how little black boys feel when they get their hair cut oh. in the barbershop's chair. Wow. In the barbershop chair when they're, when they're, you know, like getting fresh. Wow. And it's just sort of like how, it's about black boy joy and self-esteem. Which and we their, never see. their version of beauty. Oh, you that's never, so good. ever see it. All right. I'm going to give you, I might as well just so, send you a check, Denine. Let me just send my check to you right now for all the, <laughs> for all the books. Let me just empty out my account. These books are, <laughs> listen, and, and, you know, like, I believe in quality. And, and I just know. The, the beauty that you see in early Sunday morning is the quality that you see it's with beautiful. There's a Dragon in My Closet and Crown. Yeah. They're 
gorgeous, gorgeous book. And yes. I'm fully expecting that people are going to recognize the genius, the beauty, and the art that went into these pieces. Yeah. Personally, I have a baby who's graduating um, in this in, in May, and I'm really high trying to get my college? emotions in check. She's graduating high school, oh. and she's getting ready to getting. She is so just mentally, emotionally, and you know, just done will with you, high school. Will you send her to college? Ready to go? Where's she going? She's going to Yale. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm in New Haven. Yale. I am in New Haven. I live in New Haven. Ah! I live in New Haven. I'm right here, baby like right will now. Be looked after. Yes, yeah, girl. Yes, you better give that child be my after. phone number, and I will make sure. <laughs> I, you know what? I have a couple of friends whose kids c- came to Yale that I met through Facebook and what have you, and I stayed in touch with their kids and put eyes on their oh, kids wow. for them. So I will, I, you know, I'd be wow. honored to. Yes, and I won't be in her yes, business, but you. I would be. But you know, I'm a, you. I'm a black mother. I'd be like, listen, you listen, know, that's, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> I need, I need eyes on her. <laughs> I'm need like, I'm not trying to sweat sure you, that, mama. That okay. But, I, you know, <laughs> I'm going to just put eyes on you. So, yes. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. So she, she, is, she is going to Yale. And, you know, like I couldn't be more ecstatic for I her. Can't because be, this she, is such a good thing. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's going to go there and she's going to soar. All right. Yeah, she's well, going to soar. I'm, I'm really excited. She is going to soar and we're going to see to it. And she'll be well loved and well taken care of. And I'll keep eyes on her. Don't worry. And I'm not going to sweat her. Thank but you, she's, But she's got somebody who, you know what? It's nice to have somebody close if you need to do something yep. or whatever so yeah absolutely. no worries absolutely don't even t- absolutely trouble yourself not <laughs> <laughs> thank you it has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure talking to you Denine. i i really enjoy this thank i you. am a huge fan have been a long-standing fan for a long time and i hope i get to talk to you again which i i believe i will and uh and i'm looking I, forward absolutely anytime looking forward anytime. to the success journalist to journalist yes. i you know i really appreciate <laughs> This, this conversation. <laughs> so, enjoy your day. Enjoy your Friday. Thank you. All right, and thank, thank you for you. the opportunity to talk to you. All right. Thank you for having me. All, All right. right. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was Deneen, and I'm about to get out of here because I got pundits next, and uh, let me cue up uh, Johnny King's uh, "Dance All Night, Dance All Day." Did I play it? Is it playing? There we go. Oh, it's got to go loud. Oh, laptop. <laughs> Thank you, Harry, for letting me sit in the Starship Enterprise for the Talk Talk Love Baths Love Talk. All right, bye. Making sure our plans are still tight. Thursday brings a smile. I won't be putting up with this bull.